0: Okay, announcement time over. Let's uh, stop listening to what Clint has to say and turn our attention to what God has to say now. Let's turn in his word, Luke 17, 7 through 10. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you know that we've started a short summer series. So we sort of put a pin in our Roman study uh, for the summer. You know, everybody's going all over the place during the summer. There's all kinds of things going on. So continuing in a study that depends week by week on you understanding what happened the previous week seems a little um, a little uh, difficult in the summertime. So we, we put a pin often in the summertime in what we're studying, and we go to something that can sort of stand alone week to week. So we're going to be talking about Jesus' parables this summer, and today we're going to look at a really short parable um, in Luke 17, three verses, or four verses, verses 7 through 10. Turn there with me, and we'll read it together. Here's what it says, and this is from the ESV translation. It says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, uh, you will eat and drink. Does he think the servant... Does he thank, sorry, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have done only what was our duty. Lord Jesus, help me today to explain your word in a way that is both accurate and compelling. God, I pray that whatever the your intent was when you inspired men to write these words, we would receive today as your message to us. So God, we listen to you as we read and study, as we uh, try to understand what it is that you're saying. We pray that you would illuminate your word to us. God, you would be our teacher today. The The word tells us that you've given the spirit inside of us to to help us to understand. So we're all ears this morning, Lord Jesus, listening to you, what it is that you have to say to us. And and whatever you teach us today, God, we resolve in our hearts to obey you. Help us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So the the key to understanding uh, this parable is to understand two key words in the parable. If you understand these two words in the parable, then the parable is not mysterious at all. It makes perfect sense. Without a clear understanding of these words, the parable's a little squishy. It's a little hard to understand. Uh, With uh, the understanding of these two words, though, the parable is simple and it's powerful. So I want to spend my time with you today explaining these two words. The first key to understanding this simple parable is understanding the meaning of the word that's translated servant in there. Now, you guys know that the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in other languages, and uh, this passage particularly written in Greek, and the, the Greek is a, a lot more exact or specific than English is, so we have, um, we have more general words. They have often Five, four, five, six words that, that, that could be translated one English word, words that are a lot more exact. So the Greek word that's used here as servant in most of your Bibles is the word doulos. Now, doulos means one thing and one thing only. It doesn't mean a variety of things, like the word servant could mean. It means one thing and one thing only. It means slave. There are Four other words that could have been used and translated properly as servant, but, uh, but the original word here, the author's intent here, is to use a specific word slave or doulos. Uh, Jesus here, he determined to use this very specific word rather than a general one. So doulos doesn't mean anything other than slave. And there's no variation of the word that means anything else. Doulos means slave. It's a a very clear definition, biblically speaking. 127 times it's used in the New Testament. Every single one of those 127 times, it's talking about a slave or slavery. The word doulos is also a common word. Like I say, it's found a lot in the New Testament, 127 times in the New Testament uh, alone. I'm going to be honest, though, as I talk to you about this, the word slave makes me feel pretty uncomfortable, as it probably does some of you. Uh, Also, uh, apparently, it makes Bible translators feel a little uncomfortable, too, because they don't use it all that much. Uh, that makes them a little uncomfortable too. For that reason, a lot of Bibles, the majority actually, translate this word, though it clearly means slave, as servant. A, a more general word that includes slaves, uh, but not specifically as slaves. That word makes me feel, though, like I said, uncomfortable. Servant is not as strong as the word slave, and it, 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 do, uh, it doesn't carry with it the horrific baggage that we associate with the injustices of American slavery. The problem is, in an honest look at the word doulos, an honest work at the word doulos reveals that the word doulos really should be translated as slave. There are five Greek words, like I mentioned, that translate servant, but the word we're dealing with here today, doulos, doesn't mean servant alone. It means slave specifically. It may seem like an insignificant distinction to you. Why is he hounding on this? Why is he focusing on this? It may seem like an insignificant distinction, but the key to understanding the parable is, is the acknowledgment that although a slave is a servant, a servant is not necessarily a slave. In other words, the parable requires us to see the difference between becoming a servant and becoming a slave. When we choose to serve, we're still in charge. When we become a slave, we're no longer in charge. I read a book a few years ago about a man named Thomas Johnson. Uh, 175 years ago, Thomas Johnson lived really close to us in Alexandria, Virginia. Just a few miles from here, he uh, lived on a sprawling and a lucrative tobacco plantation owned by a man named Brent Bennett. On the plantation, this uh, Thomas Johnson was a 10-year-old boy, uh, and he was a slave. And Thomas was born a slave, and he remained a slave for 28 years. While Johnson was still very young, his father, who was a freed slave, attempted to purchase his freedom as well as the freedom of his mother, but Brent Bennett, the plantation owner, refused to sell them. Thomas explains the difficulty of life in his biography called 28 Years a Slave. Now don't confuse that with the the movie that came out a few years ago called 12 Years a Slave, different person. Uh, 28 Years a Slave is the name of his uh, his, bio- his autobiography. He says, in that, uh, in that autobiography, he says, hardly a day passed without someone of my own long oppressed people being led to the whipping post, and there lashed most unmercifully. Every auction day, many were sold away to Georgia or some other far-off southern states, and often could be seen in companies handcuffed on their way to southern markets, doomed, doomed to perpetual slavery," he says. So absolute was the slaves were the slaves in the power of their masters that they were pledged, leased, exchanged, taken for debt, or gambled off at the gambling table. I, I, when I think of slavery, that's what I think of. I'm struck by the helplessness of uh, Thomas's situation. Those words, doomed, doomed to perpetual slavery. Thomas lived the first 28 years of his life as a slave. Then suddenly, he was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863. He later became a college student in Charles Spurgeon's College in London and eventually became a missionary to Africa. He wrote vivid portraits of physical torture at the hands of his cruel plantation foreman, even enough to make a grown man like me, 200 years later, weep with empathy when I read his story. That is uh, what I think about when I think about a slave, wholly tethered to his master. That's really what the word doulos pictures, complete authority, and submission. The definition of the Greek word literally means one given to the will of another. That's what doulos means. Consider this verse that you may be familiar with, Jesus' words in Matthew six twenty four. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. The word in the passage is doulos in that passage, too. It's the same word, okay? So so it's better translated. A better translation of this verse might be, no slave can serve two masters. Notice how the subtle change makes a difference in the meaning of the passage. No one can serve two masters or no slave can serve two masters. Obviously, one of them must be in charge. You, like me, may be tempted to think about slavery as an injustice of the past, something that we've matured beyond as human beings, but it's simply not true. It's estimated that right now, today, in the world, over 27 million people throughout the world that are alive today are subject to some uh, form of slavery. Forced labor, uh, sex trade, inheritable poverty worldwide. The injustice of, of, of slavery is not just a thing of the past, it's a thing of the present. And it begs the question that feels a bit like an aside, but one we must take as we talk about this. Does the Bible condone slavery? Have you ever been asked that or has a proposition about that ever come to you from an unbelieving person or someone who's trying to retort the Christian faith? Does the Bible condone slavery? So I'd like to give you words and categories to to think about that and understand that. I'd like you to have confidence about the answer to that question. The Bible answers the question in two ways. Number one, on human slavery, the answer is a clear no. The Bible does not condone slavery. Listen, the Bible accounts all kinds of slavery. The Bible condemns forced slavery specifically, but God never condones slavery. God is morally crystal clear on the subject of slavery, and it's important for you, God's people, to be able to declare that with confidence. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 28. I've often heard this sentiment described as the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And it seems to be that God wants to communicate with his children that no human being has any superiority over another. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. No individual has any higher status than another, regardless of race or gender or any other designation that this world might try to levy on us to make us seem superior to someone else. Many people today disregard the Bible because it doesn't specifically condemn slavery. There are passages in Deuteronomy and Ephesians and Colossians, for example, that give instructions concerning how slaves are to be treated. This should not be taken to mean, though, that God condones all forms of slavery. The slavery we read about in the Old Testament and New Testament was not so much about races, it was about economics. People sold themselves as slaves when they could not pay their debts or provide for their families. In in Jesus' day, doctors and lawyers and even politicians submitted themselves as slaves to others. Uh, some, uh, some choose a life of slavery for practical or economic reasons. So the answer to the question, does God condone slavery, is on, in, on human slavery, the answer is absolutely no, he does not. But on spiritual slavery, the answer is a clear yes. The Bible teaches us that spiritually speaking, just like Thomas Johnson, you and I were born into slavery. We are ones given to the will of another, so to speak. In John 8, Jesus tells us everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's what the Bible teaches us about our relationship to sin. We're enslaved to it. It's a dominant master in our life. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul teaches we're like children. We are slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world, he says in Galatians 4. And in Galatians 5, we're told it is for freedom that Jesus Christ set us free from this bondage and slavery, and we should stand firm and, and not submit again, Paul says, to the yoke of slavery. So he says, he says, we were born enslaved to sin. In Christ, we have been freed from sin. And when we live in bondage to sin, it's like we submit ourselves again to the same type of slavery. When I was uh, I was young, I was taught that Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. And that little quip has really served me throughout my life when I am tempted to dabble in sin. Sin is a ruthless master. And it will always take you further, keep you longer, and cost you more. i found nothing is truer in my life. When I think of, if I think of myself as good, and I think of myself as able to do whatever uh, I want, I, I find that it's just simply not true. I'm not good, and I'm not able to do whatever I want. A- and if I come to accept what the Bible says about me, that my heart is deceitful and it's desperately wicked as, as one thing, then, uh, then I, I, I find myself much in a much better position to actually war against sin in the power of Christ. One of the men who wrote a big portion of the Bible, the Apostle Paul, he expresses his slavery in this way. He says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, and I do what I hate to do. (laughs) Have you ever felt that way? I feel that way so regularly. (laughs) I don't understand what I do. Why do I do what I do? For what I want to do, I can't find a way to do, and what I hate, I actually do. I mean, that's true in my heart, it's true with my actions, it's true in my mind. Paul expressed it so good that I could just adopt that as my life verse, you know, say, like, like, I do the things I don't want to do, and the things I do want to do, I don't, I'm not able to do those things, and the things I actually end up doing, I just hate those things. I mean, that's how I feel virtually every day. I, and I bet if you were to be totally honest, I mean, take off the veneer for just a second. Nobody's listening, you're just talking to yourself. It's inside your head. It's inside your heart. You've felt this way before, too. I'm not the only one. Like, you don't have the power over your own self-destructive desires. So pride will tell you that you can do it. And others will tell you that you can do it. But you can't do it. You'll tell yourself, and others will tell you, you just need one more chance. We can overcome that habit. We can discipline ourselves into obedience. So here's where I find, found myself as a young man. Everyone in my life was telling me how good I was. Yet, like Paul, I found myself doing bad things all the time. I found myself thinking evil thoughts and desiring things that I knew would destroy me or others around me. And if I really got to have my way and nobody knew what I was doing, I would do things that were absolutely atrocious and despicable. But the message of the gospel makes sense of all of this because I was a slave. I was a slave. Paul, again in Romans 6, he says, Do you not know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So he depicts these two types of slavery for us. A spiritual slavery that that uh, causes us to give ourselves wholly over to sin or a slavery that causes us to give ourselves wholly over to Jesus Christ. So here it is plainly. What God has done for you, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Doesn't that make those words a little more heavy for us? We have been bought by a master. You might as well, have been dead. Sin's mastery over you was so complete, you were hopeless, decaying in your self righteous sin. And Jesus Christ, in his benevolence and his mercy over you, bought you. Sin's mastery over you was complete. Here's Paul again trying to put into words the dominance that sin had in your life and in my life. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you walked following the course of this world, uh, following the prince of the power of the air, that Satan the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived according to the passions of your flesh. What drove what you did day to day? The passions of your flesh did. Carrying out the desires in your body and in your mind, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were in that state, dead trespassers, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And he raised us up with him to be seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So what this means is, according to the Bible, in Christ, God has issued an emancipation proclamation to all who have placed their faith in him, you have been bought by God and you are now a slave to Christ. You're now a slave to a master, but not a wicked master like your previous master. Not one who's out for your demise, but you've been got bought by a good and benevolent master. Because he didn't buy you so that, so that you could serve him. Instead, he bought you so that He could lay his life down for you so that he could serve you. More like an adoptive parent. Listen how Paul, the the same author we read before, describes this. This is in Romans 8. This is so profound. Just catch it. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. See, I didn't make the connection between slavery and adoption. Paul did. He said, he said, you were a slave to a brutal master, and not just did you get bought by a benevolent master, but he brought you in as a son. To whom we cry, Abba, Father. As, that just means Daddy. It's Like this childlike term. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. And if children, we're heirs to everything that belongs to God, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. So the first key to understanding this parable is understanding that it's not just sort of a passive servanthood, an opt-in, opt-out sort of servanthood, but it's a mastery that we have been bought by a price with a price by God and we are slaves to him because of the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross and our submission to him and our salvation and the second key to understanding this we'll understand this parable if we understand the second idea and it's found in verse 10 it's the meaning uh, of the word akrihas akrihas and it's it's the word that's uh translated unworthy or unprofitable in verse 10 look there in verse 10. It literally means useless, good for nothing. Useless, good for nothing. So here's what Jesus is getting at in the parable of the master and the servant that we just read. Those four little verses. Here's what he's getting at. Your service to God does not entitle you to any reward that you do not already possess in Jesus Christ. No one... No one, no one in this room, no matter how hardworking, how dedicated they are, how good they do with that effort of, of serving and pleasing God, how good a doulos they are, can ever put God in his debt in any way, shape, or form. The impulse you and I have to receive affirmation from God or even others in reward from God for serving him is the impulse of an entitled but useless slave. That's the description that we're getting here. The impulse we have to get some kind of affirmation from God for our service to God is the impulse of an entitled but utterly worthless, useless slave. You see, the only thing that distinguishes the beauty of the privilege we've been given in Christ from the ugliness of entitlement is the practice of humble gratitude. The only thing that will distinguish the beauty of the privilege we've been given in Christ from the ugliness of entitlement that comes when we think we deserve something from God is the practice of humble gratitude. Irish poet Oscar Wilde said it better than me. He said, everyone is worthy of love except for him who thinks he's worthy of love. Love is a sacrament that should be taken kneeling. Wow, isn't that powerful? Like, love is a sacrament that we should take on our knees. We should receive love with humility. The love that God has shown you and I, the price that he paid for us, though we are worthless, should put us on our knees. And it should infuse us with joy as we work for God. So that in our labor for God, in our work for God, we don't think like these missionaries, we think they should they could think, wow, isn't this great what I'm doing for God? No. Far be it from them to ever believe that their their work, their dedication of their life is a response, an overflow of the benevolence that God has shown them, of the total mastery he has over their lives. So The only thing that distinguishes the beauty of privilege from the ugliness of entitlement is the practice of humble gratitude. So we must respond to God with humble hearts. We must receive his love on bended knee and and be infused with the joy that comes as we work for Jesus. See, there is a danger that we would let our eyes sort of wander away from the mesmerizing mercy of God that we would let our eyes wander away from a fixation on our own fragility. You see, as we see how amazing God is in His acceptance and and, and total purchase of us, His total ownership over our lives, and as we look hard at how utterly useless we are, our fixation on our own fragility, we begin to feel a sense of pride. We could could begin to feel a sense of pride in our sacrifice for God and our service to God. You know, if we if we're not paying attention to our fragility, if we're not paying attention to the incredible sacrifice Jesus has made, we could start to lie to ourselves, to deceive ourselves, to start to believe that we are indispensable assets in God's kingdom, that somehow He needs us. But nothing could be further from the truce, truth. It's a lying and deceptive pride that convinces us that we are indispensable rather than useless slaves. And if we're not on guard, if we're not paying attention, if we're not careful, we'll spend our spiritual lives calling in imaginary debts that aren't really owed to us. You know how miserable it is to call in imaginary debts that aren't really owed to us in order to avoid the real debts that we owe to God? You know, to somehow convince ourselves that we bring something of value to the table, what makes our lives good is that God has bestowed mercy on us, and we have seen His sacrifice and received it. Oh, how the flesh feeds upon recognition and acknowledgment, while the soul fights to humble itself through uh, through not seeking praise. Like it's it's a it's a, wor- it's a it's an effort. It's a work when our flesh rises up and says, "We deserve acclaim for this. We deserve notoriety for this." For us to say all notoriety, all claim, all praise goes to God, because he has been the one that's bestowed all the mercy, and I've been a useless slave. You see, in the parable, the owner of the slave will never become a debtor to the slave, no matter how much work the slave does. The slave could be an excellent slave, the best of slaves, and even in the best of slaving that he could do, the owners, any act of kindness the owner would do would not be owed to him. It would be grace on grace. You see, in the parable, the owner of the slave will never become a debtor to the slave, no matter how much work the slave does or how good that work is. In other words, because of our sin debt, we are incapable of giving anything to God. We cannot offer anything to God. This is so different than what the world tells us about ourselves. The world tells us about ourselves that we are the center of the universe, but when you read the Bible, you realize we are not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe, and we orbit around God. The world tells us the world orbits around us. The Bible tells us that we orbit around God, and that is a fundamental difference that will change everything about the way we see the world and what has happened to us in our salvation. And our attempts to do so are are, are futile. Our attempts to to orbit the world around ourselves are ultimately futile. We can never give God more than he deserves, which means that he never owes us any thanks. You know, in this, in this passage, in this parable, it seems like, well, the master's kind of rude. I mean, couldn't he just give him a little thanks? Wouldn't that, would that be so bad? The point here is not to scrutinize uh, the, the master's activity, but the servant's activity, right? The, the master's activity is for another parable in another day. Right now this parable is about the servant and that's you and me about how we relate to God the idea that we are owed something from God for our service and sacrifice to him and this is an idea that is deeply baked into our lives and into a modern american christianity and one that we have to eradicate if we're truly going to be servants of God you can't outgive God if you spend your entire life in sacrificial service to God even then you'd not add a single cent toward the repayment of your debt to God. God will always give us more than than we deserve, and we will always owe him no matter what we do. So, my encouragement for you today is to ask yourself a few questions, diagnostic questions that might help you to understand where you are in your total servanthood to God. God and his total mastery over you, I wonder, is there anything you won't do for God? Like, is there a compartment or a closet or a category that's off-limits to God? He's like, like, I will serve God, God will serve you. I'll do anything that you want. I'll go anywhere you call me, but I won't go there. I won't do that. You guys remember that song, I would do anything for love? <laughs> But I won't do that. I mean, are, are you there? I mean, I'm not trying to make light of this reality, but I, I'm saying like like a lot of us have categories and compartments like that that are tucked away, don't we? I mean, areas that it's like, yeah, I will serve God on these terms and these spaces at these times, but there are categories that are off limits to God. They're like closets that are locked. Is there anything that I won't do for the Lord? Is there? anyone I won't serve? Is there anybody that in Jesus' name I won't serve that's too far gone for me to serve? Is there anyone who I won't permit to serve me? These are some diagnostic questions that might help us to understand if we've if we've blocked off any categories of our life. The, the, the great news in all of this, I mean, when we think about Jesus, we've been talking about the servant's response, and we've not talked a whole lot about the master and his response. But if we fast forward just a couple chapters in Luke to chapter 22, verse 27, you you don't have to go there unless unless you want to, but in 22, verse 27, Jesus with the disciples in the upper room, and Jesus says, who's greater, the one who reclines or the one who serves? And the disciples respond, well, surely the one who reclines. Yet, I am among you, Jesus says, and I'm the one who serves. So, the message to you and I today is that though we can never repay our debt to God, even with a lifetime of service, and our, though our service should be motivated by love and gratitude for the benevolence of God that He's shown to us, we still can't even outserve God he will serve us when we're incapable to serve ourselves. That's why it's so beautiful when Christians care for the vulnerable and the weak and the poor. Because what we're doing is mimicking the behavior of God who came to us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and, and made us alive in God. You see how we can actually mimic the Savior's activity by serving others? It's, it's amazing. The purpose of this parable is not to teach us uh, in, in what way the Spirit of God deals with us, but in what way we should serve God. Three resolves for every Christian based upon this message. The Master's pleasure before my pleasure. The Master's people before me. The Master's service before self. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We come today you know maybe some of us just to get a little spiritual boost a little little extra word in our life so we can get through the next week and and like you always do you overwhelm us with with a a new story god in this parable is meant to teach us that all spiritual pride should just be plucked up out of our lives that we have nothing to be prideful about and god you are so merciful you're so good you give us so much and God, would you, would you produce in us as we look at how kind you have been to us and how incapable we were to ever please you? It, it, could we just be mesmerized by your gift of salvation? And could that gift that we understand and have received, could it, could it, fuel, motivation to serve you with joy for all the days of our life, to endure all trials and difficulties and hardships in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing you and being found in you. God you are you are worthy of every moment of our life and any ambition we hold back for ourselves is a fevery from you. God we we ask that you would, Fill us with the joy that comes from knowing you and being found in you, and you would animate our times of service and sacrifice by a sincere love and gratitude for all that it is you've done to us. Lord, it's not toilsome, it's not laborsome, it's not burdensome. It's joyful to be able to give our lives for you. God, we pray that as we take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes and We consider the great sacrifice you made for us again. That, Lord, you would produce joy in our hearts and endurance to go and serve you with gladness all the days of our life. We love you, Lord. We praise you and worship you with all that's in us. In Christ's name.